0: Their razors provide a smooth shave every time. And their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash gold. That's Harris.com gold for a $3 trial set. Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. Today's podcast was recorded yesterday. If you want to listen to my podcasts commercial-free the day I record them, go to petershift.locals.com and sign up. It only costs $5 a month. The Peter Schiff Show. Today's podcast is sponsored by Avast, a vast new all in one solution. Avast One helps you take control of your safety and privacy online through a range of features. Learn more about Avast One at avast.com. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Shopify. Shopify is a platform designed for anyone to sell anywhere, giving small entrepreneurs the resources once reserved for just big business. And to get a free 14-day trial and full access to Shopify's entire suite of features, go to shopify.com gold. U.S. stock market indexes were broadly higher this week going into the three-day holiday Memorial Day weekend, the official kickoff for summer But I don't think this rally is the kickoff for a new bull market. I think it certainly has all the trappings of a bear market rally. In fact, the S&P finally broke a seven-week losing streak. The Dow broke an eight-week losing streak, something that hasn't happened in nearly 100 years. So clearly, a rally was bound to happen given how much downside had already occurred in such a short period of time nothing goes straight down bear markets always have rallies in fact the rallies in bear markets are often the biggest rallies you get in short periods of time because they're designed to fool people into thinking that a bottom is in and sucker more bulls back into the market they really amount to a bull trap Because once the bulls buy in, they get trapped and then the market hits new lows, which is what I'm expecting. In fact, all week we had bad news. It wasn't like there was good news that helped the market rally. The market rallied despite bad news. Now, in general, yes, that is a way to mark a bottom when you have a market that doesn't go down on bad news. But I still think this bear market has more room to go down before we also get the type of capitulation that you would like to see at a bottom in a bear market. We have been following this slope of hope, and I still think most people are hopeful that the bottom is in. They're not scared that it's a bottomless pit. And that's the type of fear that you generally need to form a credible bear market bottom, and especially since this bear market is really just getting started. And officially, we don't even have one yet in the S&P or the Dow. We only really have bear markets in the NASDAQ and in the Russell 2000. Now, we did dip our toe into bear market territory last week in the S&P, but we didn't close in bear market territory. And that little rally sparked this bigger rise this week and in fact one of the reasons that it looks like this is more likely a bear market rally rather than a new bull market is the most heavily shorted stocks are the ones that were up the most now why are stocks heavily shorted well because they're the most overpriced they've got broken business models they don't make any money the worst stocks in the market are the ones that attract the short sellers For example, take a look at what happened to the meme stocks. GameStop shot up 7% on Friday, but more significantly, the stock surged by 43% on the week. And also AMC, that stock surged by 18% on Friday alone. So if you see a big rise in stocks that are heavily shorted, most likely it's the shorts that are buying those stocks. They are covering their positions to take profits. So it's not that these stocks are appealing to new longs. It's just that the shorts want to book their profits. Maybe going into this holiday weekend, there were a lot of funds that wanted to take some profits and take some risk off the table. And so they went in and covered their shorts. But generally what happens when you have a short covering rally, the stocks ultimately that were covered get sold off again both by longs who have been waiting for rallies to get rid of these dogs and by new short sellers who are going to be attracted to the bounce as an opportunity to establish positions. A lot of the bad news that the market shrugged off all week long was coming from retailers. In fact, we got more bad news for retailers on Friday. Yet despite that bad news, we saw big rallies in the markets. The Dow Jones was up 575 points On Friday, one and three quarters percent, but that was outdone by the NASDAQ, which actually gained three and a third percent on the day. Again, despite not only bad corporate news, but bad economic news, which was coming out all week. I'm going to get to the economic news later. I want to focus right now on the news coming out of retailers, but it's been the same story, retailer after retailer. They keep dropping these earning bombshells. It reminds me of that song, Another One Bites the Dust, because that's what keeps happening. Now, there are a few exceptions. Once in a while, you'll get a retailer that will beat, but the vast majority are missing. And they're all missing for the same reason. If you listen to the excuses as to why their earnings are down, number one, it's inflation driving up costs. Their costs are going up. But they're not able to recoup those costs with the price increases that they've pushed through to date, meaning that a lot of these companies need to raise prices a lot more than they already have. And of course, as they raise prices, that starts cutting into their sales because their customers can't afford to buy as much stuff if they have to pay higher prices for that stuff. That's one of the reasons that the retailers have been reluctant to raise prices but now they're gonna to have to throw in the towel given the fact that the prices are not high enough to cover their escalating costs. Not just the cost of running their businesses and paying their workers, but all the transportation costs. Everything about running a business is getting more expensive and ultimately all of those costs need to be borne by the customer. And if the customer can't afford to bear those costs, well, the business needs to scale back and in some cases, the businesses need to shut down. Now, some of the companies that reported bad news on Friday were big lots. That stock sank by 12%, although it was down better than 20% in pre-market trading. So the stock did get a bit of a bounce off the lows. Same story for American Eagle Outfitters. That stock was down maybe 12 13% at one point. It only closed down 6.7%. The gap, which I've talked about on this podcast before, also came out with worse than expected earnings. And in pre market trading, the stock was at a new 52 week low, but it managed to rally and it actually closed positive 4.3% on the day. But the news is decisively negative for all these companies. And again, it's not just that inflation is driving up their costs and squeezing their margins. But all these companies are also pointing out what inflation is doing to their customers. They're mentioning the fact that the customers are buying less because they don't have as much purchasing power remaining after they finish paying for all the necessities. So if food is more expensive, if energy is more expensive, if rent is more expensive, if interest rates are higher, it affects your home mortgage, but it also affects an auto loan, credit card debt. Then you got higher insurance. Many municipalities are raising local taxes. So all of this is biting into the purchasing power of American consumers and they have to cut back. They have to make up for how much more they're spending on everything they need by spending less on everything they want. And a lot of these companies are selling what people want, not what they necessarily need. And that is the problem. But let's look at what happened in the markets on the week because it wasn't just a Friday rally. The markets were pretty much strong for the last three days of the week. And that drove the Dow Jones to a weekly gain Of 6.2% and that index is now a full 8.4% off its lows which it put in last week. Bigger rally in the S&P 500 it gained 6.6% on the week and that now means the S&P is 9.1% off its low that it hit last week. An even bigger rally off the low in the Russell 2000 although it was up less than the S&P on the week up 6.5% but that index is now 11% above last week's low that is a big rally in a short period of time but mind you the Russell 2000 despite that big rally is still in a bear market it's still down 24% from its peak, so solidly in bear market territory. An even bigger rally for the Nasdaq this week, of 7.1%, although almost half of that rally happened on Friday. The composite is now 10.3% above last week's low. But like the Russell 2000, still in a bear market, down 24% from its peak. So the Russell 2000 and the Nasdaq pretty much trading in lockstep. The ARC Innovation Fund, to give you an idea of what was going on with the most speculative names, it also had a big rise on the week, but not as big as one might have expected. It was up the same as the NASDAQ, about 7.1%. So even though that index went down a lot more, it hasn't gone up as much this week. Although off the lows... The ARK Innovation Fund is up 29%. And that's because it didn't make its low last week. It made its low a little while ago. So it has enjoyed a bigger bounce off the low. But it's still down much more than the overall NASDAQ. The interesting thing, though, about the rise in speculative assets last week was what was not included. And that was cryptocurrencies in general and Bitcoin and Bitcoin. In particular, in fact, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, though it is about eight and a half percent off its low, it only rose by 1.2 percent on the week. Bitcoin itself was relatively flat, but most cryptocurrencies, including Ether, the number two cryptocurrency, were down actually quite a bit on the week. In fact, if you look at the total market cap of all the cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin now represents about 46% of the market cap. Now, if you go back I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, it was down to about 41%. So the reason that Bitcoin is now a bigger percentage of the total market cap of crypto, is not because Bitcoin went up. It's just because it went down less than all the other cryptos. And by the way, we are getting closer and closer to 20,000 cryptocurrencies as I am recording this podcast here on Saturday morning, there are 19,626 cryptos out there. The combined market cap for all those cryptos is now just under $1.2 trillion. Now, that number stood at close to $3 trillion at the high last year. So we have seen a 60% decline In the market cap of crypto and Bitcoin almost the same thing down about 60% from its market peak. You know, I saw Michael Saylor was on with Tucker Carlson the other night talking about Bitcoin and pointing out that it is a safe haven, that it's a safe place to hide, that it's the only sure thing in an uncertain world. How can he say something so reckless and irresponsible? How could you say Bitcoin is the only safe place to hide when people who own Bitcoin have seen a bigger decline in the market value of what they're holding than holders of stocks or bonds? In fact, Bitcoin did not even participate in last week's rally in risk assets. What does that tell you? Because, you know, a lot of people have been talking about Bitcoin recently and they said, "Okay, I guess we were wrong. You know, it's not really digital gold. It is a risk asset, but it's correlated with the Nasdaq. So it's like the Nasdaq. It's like a tech stock. It's going to go down with the Nasdaq and it's going to go up with the Nasdaq. Well, last week proved that they're half right. Yes, Bitcoin is a risk asset that will go down with the NASDAQ, but it won't necessarily go up with the NASDAQ when the NASDAQ goes up because it's a risk asset that just has risk. It doesn't have any of the positive characteristics of tech stocks or other risk assets. Look, there are a lot of companies out there, I think, in this environment that were born from the cheap money policies of the Federal Reserve that are going to go to zero. There are business models that are non-viable yet still manage to attract funding. So in some respects, those companies are like Bitcoin in that they're going to zero. Although investors still have hope that these companies will one day have a viable business model, Bitcoin will never have a viable business model because it's not a business. It's just a token with no intrinsic value, so ultimately it goes to zero. But if people don't know it has no value and they're willing to buy it despite its lack of value, it can have a market price until the greater fools give up. You run out of fools and the market collapses. But most of the stocks that are out there that are in, let's say, the NASDAQ, certainly the NASDAQ 100, these are viable companies. The only question is, what are they worth? What is an accurate price to pay for these companies? What is the present value of their future earnings? That is the question. Now, I think most of these stocks are overpriced for two reasons. One, I think they're too optimistic on what those future earnings are likely to be. But number two, they're not discounting them by a high enough rate, meaning that the PEs are too high as are the earnings estimates. So I think most stocks are wildly overpriced, but they at least deserve to have some price. Bitcoin doesn't deserve to have any price because any price above zero means that it's overpriced. So just because you own Bitcoin, don't think that you own the equivalent of a tech stock. You don't. You may own some asset that at times has a price that's correlated to the tech stocks, but what happened this week, and I've been warning about it, that Bitcoin would ultimately break that correlation. Yes, it's gonna be correlated on the way down, but not necessarily on the way up. Yes, sometimes Bitcoin is going to go up with the NASDAQ, but many times it won't. And in fact, if the NASDAQ really drops next week, if this bear market rally is already over and we move down again, I would expect Bitcoin to move down in sympathy with the NASDAQ, especially if you look at all the other coins. Look at how weak that Ether chart is. In fact, I tweeted that out. On Friday as well it's got the same pattern obviously as Bitcoin it's got this huge double top but then it's got a head and shoulders top that is formed on the right side of the double top clearly below the neckline in no man's land it's a trapdoor I mean I would say Ether doesn't even have any support until around a thousand right now it's around 1750 but if Ether is gonna collapse Bitcoin's going down too All these coins are going down. There's no diversification there. They all trade the same. Yes, it's possible that if the market crashes, Bitcoin may initially crash less because people may be gravitating out of other coins that they regard as more speculative into Bitcoin. But I get a laugh when I hear people talk about how other cryptos are speculative as if Bitcoin is not, as if Bitcoin is some kind of blue chip safe haven. And the other altcoins, well, you know, they're shit coins. They're real speculative. But, you know, Bitcoin is this blue chip. They are all the same. They are all speculative. Now, maybe the crypto investors regard Bitcoin as less speculative than some of these lesser known coins and so maybe initially as everybody is dumping their crypto they may hold on to Bitcoin a little bit longer or maybe some people that want to stay in crypto but get out of the names that are falling faster may trade up in some respects into Bitcoin but at the end of the day they're all going to go down and ultimately they're all going to approach zero. at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeletemecom slash gold and enter code gold at checkout. That's joindeletemecom slash gold, code gold. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest therapist And switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com/gold today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P.com/gold. You can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade, or at least grab an extra latte after getting a Chime checking account with features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe, no minimum balance requirements, and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals 24. That's chime.com slash goals 24. Chime feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Avast has been a global leader in cybersecurity for more than 30 years, and it's trusted by over 435 million users. Avast's new all-in-one solution, Avast One, helps you take control of your safety and privacy online through a range of features. To learn more about Avast One, go to avast.com. You'll learn about things like antivirus, their award-winning antivirus software that stops viruses and malware from harming your devices. Also their data breach monitoring, which enables you to find out if your online accounts have been compromised and whether your passwords need to be changed. You'll also get firewall protection to keep your information secure and prevent attacks that seek to access your computer and steal your data. I've been successfully using Avast to protect my personal data for years, in fact, Avast prevents over 1.5 billion attacks every month. So now you can confidently take control of your online world without worrying about viruses, phishing attacks, ransomware, hacking attempts, or other cyber crimes. To learn more about Avast One, go to avast.com. But I think the most significant market action of the week was not in the cryptocurrencies. It was not even in the stock market. It was in the foreign exchange market. Take a look at what happened to the dollar index on the week. It closed at 101 spot 64. That's down from 103 spot 15 at the end of the prior week. That's a full 1.5 drop in that index. And in fact, two weeks ago, the dollar index closed at 104 spot 56 after making a high of 105.05 on that week. So we're now down three and a quarter percent. In the US dollar index. In fact, we just had the biggest two week decline in the dollar index since June of 2020. And that's when the dollar started to reverse the big rise that it had in the initial phase of COVID. I think this is very significant. We still have some more downside before I can be 100% convinced that 105.05 was the peak. But it makes sense that that's the peak because that's about where it topped out during that big COVID rally. But I'd like to see the dollar index back below 100 before I'm more convinced that what we've seen is, in fact, a top. And what is driving the dollar weakness is weakness in the economic data. We continue to get this weak data. And if you look at what investors are now pricing in as far as interest rate hike expectations, the market now believes That we're going to get these two back-to-back 50 basis point rate hikes from the Fed but now a lot of investors are starting to talk about a pause following those two rate hikes because a lot of people think the Fed has kind of already backed itself into a corner and has committed to those hikes and so now it has to deliver to maintain its credibility but beyond that the markets are starting to worry Or maybe it's not a worry, maybe they're hopeful that the Fed is going to pause and then maybe not raise rates anymore, given the fact that we're getting all of this weak economic data. Again, not just weak data coming out of corporate earnings, but weak data on the economy. And so all that weak data also caused bond yields to fall on the week, So bond prices went up. But also, the yield curve continues to steepen. If you look at the yields now on the five year US Treasury at 2.724, the 10 year is 2.743, but the 30 year is at 2.972, so just below 3%. And the gap between the 10 year and the 30 year is rising, which indicates that the markets are starting to suspect that the Fed will not hike as much as they've been indicating or that they are starting to believe that the inflation problem will be a problem for a longer period of time and thus having to discount it more heavily into a 30-year security than in a 10-year security. But I was a bit surprised that the weakness in the dollar and the decline in longer-term yields Did not translate into a bigger rise in gold and silver prices. Gold and silver were up on the week, but not very much. But gold still managed to close above 1850. We went out at 1854. Silver was above $22 at $22.12. I think we should have had a bigger rally. I don't think that means a rally isn't coming. I just think it was delayed a bit. And my expectation would be that we see a bigger rally in both gold and silver next week to reflect what's going on with the U.S. dollar. But more importantly than the fact that the dollar is falling, but why the dollar is falling. And that's because of the weakness in the U.S. economy. But one market that was very strong was crude oil up almost five bucks on the week crude closed above 115 at $115.07 a barrel. That's only the second time that crude has closed a week above 115 since the invasion of the Ukraine, and in fact, it is the second highest close since then. Perhaps more significantly, though, oil is poised to finish the month with its fifth consecutive monthly gain, something that hasn't happened in 10 years. Strength in the oil market is not going to be good news for the U.S. economy. It's certainly not good news for inflation. Gasoline prices and other energy prices are going to continue to rise, depriving Americans of their purchasing power. Higher oil prices are effectively a tax, and the money that you spend on taxes means you don't have that money to spend on other things. So the rise in oil prices Continues to be problematic. But the bigger problem is going to be how much more I think oil prices are going to rise in the future relative to how much they've already risen. In fact, if you look at the entire increase in the price of oil since we made the COVID bottom, we are on the same trend right now post the Russian invasion of Ukraine that we were on pre that invasion. In fact, other than that brief spike up to about 130 and then a big pullback, you wouldn't even know where the invasion was on that chart, right? If you just took away that little spike bar and just looked at, let's say, you know, where the markets are on a trend, you would not even know, looking at the crude oil chart, when Putin invaded the Ukraine. And what that really means is that so far, the Russian invasion of the Ukraine has done nothing to the price of oil. There is no way that you can look at that chart and blame the oil price on Putin or Russia when it's following the identical trajectory from before the invasion as it is after. So if there had never been a Russian invasion of the Ukraine, oil prices would likely be exactly where they are now. There has been no difference at all now I don't think that's sustainable because I think what's going on with Russia and the Ukraine is clearly a bullish factor for oil and what I'm thinking is the oil price shock that everybody think we've experienced we haven't experienced it yet but it's going to happen I am expecting a major spike up in the price of oil and then instead of a pullback to the current trend line Oil continues to rise on an entirely different trend line that is much higher to reflect the premium in the price of oil that is a consequence of what's going on geopolitically with Russia and the Ukraine and all that. So that has yet to happen. So if you think oil prices are high now because Russia invaded Ukraine, where do you see what actually happens when oil prices do in fact rise to reflect the reality of that invasion? And not just the reality of the invasion, but more importantly, the reality of the sanctions. Because so far consumers have been spared those consequences. Sure, they're paying higher energy prices, but they were gonna pay higher energy prices anyway. I'm talking about paying a premium that actually reflects the reality of both the invasion and the sanctions because that's coming. Consumers are not going to continue to get a break. Soon, they're going to actually have to pay the full cost of what Biden and everybody else is currently pretending they're already paying. You got to love that sound. That's the sound of another sale taking place on Shopify. Shopify is an all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. So supercharge your knowledge, your sales, and your success. For a free 14-day trial, go to shopify.com gold, all lowercase, Shopify is a platform designed for anyone to sell anywhere, giving small entrepreneurs the resources once reserved for just big business. And it's all customized for you with a great looking online store that brings your ideas to life and gives you the tools to manage and drive your sales. Making your ideas real opens endless possibilities. In fact, what I love most about Shopify is how easy it makes it for any entrepreneur to succeed running a small business. Shopify empowers millions of entrepreneurs from their first sale to full scale. And every 28 seconds, another small business owner makes their first sale on Shopify. So get started by building and customizing your online store with no coding or design experience required. Access powerful tools to help you find customers, drive sales and manage your day to day. Gain knowledge and confidence with the resources you need to succeed. Plus with 24 seven support, you're never alone. It's more than just the store, Shopify grows with you. These are the possibilities, and they're powered by Shopify. So go to shopify.com gold, all lowercase, and get a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. So start selling on Shopify today. Go to shopify.com gold right now. Now, what I think really set the stage for the big moves this week in the stock market, the foreign exchange market, the bond market was the release of the Federal Open Market Committee minutes on Wednesday. And I think what was significant there was the fact that the market did not sell off based on the Fed's hawkish tone. Now, of course, these minutes were recorded before a lot of the bad economic data and corporate data that we've experienced recently was released and so maybe some of the market participants kind of took these minutes with a grain of salt. But if you read what was in those minutes, the Fed was as hawkish as ever with respect to their commitment to fighting inflation. Now, again, what they've committed to do is highly inadequate for the task at hand, but nobody seems to understand that. They just see this Fed talking tough about how it's going to fight inflation and how it's committed to raising interest rates all the way up to 25 or 3% in order to do it. But again, when I read these minutes, all I see is a Fed that is only willing to fight inflation so long as it believes it could do so without harming this super strong economy. In fact, because the Fed thinks the economy is so super strong, in particular, the labor market, that's the reason that the Fed is willing to fight inflation because they believe that this super strong economy can easily take it in stride. Once they realize that their assessment of the economy is wrong, well, they're going to be singing a different tune. But I think the fact that we didn't get a sell-off in the stock market, a sell-off in the bond market, that probably encouraged people to buy, probably encouraged shorts to cover. But, you know, I think that the Fed's assessment of the labor market being so strong, I think that's going to go down in a similar fashion to the way that Biden's assessment of the ruble being so weak. I mentioned this on the last podcast that when Biden gave his press conference in early March and bragged about how weak the ruble was and how the ruble was rubble and the sanctions had reduced the ruble to rubble, all you had to do is buy rubles right then. Assuming that you found a firm that would allow you to buy rubles with all the sanctions, the ruble was a great buy just as Biden pronounced it dead. Well, I think the Federal Reserve is going to end up being just as accurate in its assessment of the strength of the labor market. The Federal Reserve is looking at the low unemployment rate and thinking we have the strongest labor market ever. Well, what the Federal Reserve doesn't realize is the unemployment rate, like the ruble, is about to rise. We're going to see a significant increase in unemployment. The only question is, when is that going to start? Obviously, looking at some of the weekly unemployment claims, it looks pretty clear to me, and I've been talking about this, that we've seen a trough in unemployment. We got the most recent unemployment numbers on Thursday. The jobless claims came out at 210,000 for the week, slightly above the consensus estimate of 208,000. But what's more significant to me is that we're remaining above 200,000. The prior week, we were at 218,000, but also the four-week moving average is now back above 200,000. As of last week, it was still below at 199,500, but now the four-week moving average is 206,000.75. Unemployment is now trending up. And I think it's about to spike up as soon as we get a lot of the layoffs that are obviously going to be the consequence of a drop in corporate earnings and then a drop in the stock market, which is also going to result in more layoffs. So I think just at the point in time where the Fed was proclaiming how strong the economy was based on how low the unemployment rate was, that was probably the bottom in the unemployment rate and it's going up from here. But now that I'm talking about some of the economic data, let's look at more of the economic data that came out during the week because the week was filled with weak economic data. In fact, if you look at the economic surprise index, that index basically measures how much the data is above or below what the markets expect and as you would expect, the data has been coming out below expectations. That index is now at the lowest level since September of 2021, but more important than the level is the magnitude of the decline. We have just seen the biggest decline in economic expectations since April of 2020. Now, why were the numbers so bad in April of 2020? Well, because the market just got blindsided by COVID. And so once COVID came in and then we had all the restrictions because of COVID, obviously the economic numbers post-COVID were a lot worse than what people expected pre-COVID. Well, you have to go all the way back to that COVID shock to see a bigger drop in the economic surprise index in a shorter period of time than what we are experiencing right now. And so what this evidences is, is that that strong economy that the Federal Reserve believes it was seeing was just a mirage. And as that mirage is fading, reality is rearing its head. And it's clear that we don't have an economy that's impervious to rate hikes. In fact, the economy may already be in recession and the Fed has barely hiked. But let's take a look at some of the data that came out during the week. First of all, we got the durable goods orders for April that came out on Wednesday. And the prior month, March, was up 0.8. That ended up getting revised down to up 0.6. So not as strong as investors were originally told. The consensus for April was for an increase of 0.5. And we only increased by 04 so a miss. Ex-transportation, they were looking for a rise of 0.6, which was quite a bit weaker than the 1.1% gain in March. But we only ended up with an increase of 0.3, half of the 0.6 that had been expected. Same type of miss in core capital goods. There they were looking for an increase of 05 Instead, we got an increase of just 0.3. So that was weaker than expected in durable goods. Obviously, if Americans are spending more money on food and energy and rent, they don't have as much money left over to buy these big ticket items. And that is reflected in weaker than expected durable goods numbers. On Thursday, we got the pending home sales index for April. Now, why anybody would be surprised that this index missed is beyond me. The decline for March was minus 1.2%. That got revised to a larger decline of 1.6%. The consensus for April was for a decline of 1.5%. The range of expectations went from an increase of 1% to a decline of 2.3% the actual decline was 3.9% more than double what had been estimated again I've been talking about it on this podcast home sales are going to collapse why because people can't afford to buy homes for two reasons one the prices are way up but two the cost of borrowing the money to pay the higher prices is way up because you have to borrow more to pay the higher price but the interest rate on that larger mortgage balance is way up from where it used to be so more and more Americans have been priced out of the market and that is reflected in a declining sales and because sales are declining the inventory of unsold homes is building and ultimately price is going to have to give. In fact. One of the only reasons, though, that I think there may be a limited impact on inventories is a lot of people who own homes are going to be very reluctant to sell those homes if they have a low fixed rate mortgage attached to those homes because they don't want to give up that mortgage because they can never get it again. Because if you sell one home and buy another home, the mortgage isn't portable, nor are mortgages assumable. If somebody buys your home, they can't also assume your mortgage, they've got to go and take out a whole new mortgage. So what these low mortgages actually represent are assets that in many cases are more valuable than the home itself. Think about it. If you own a home and you have a 30 year fixed rate mortgage at three and a half, the fact that you own that mortgage is very valuable. If you could sell that mortgage to somebody else, you would get a lot of money for it. That mortgage represents an asset to you. And if you sell that home, you give up that asset. Now, whoever owns that mortgage is hoping that you sell because they don't want that mortgage. They want to get their money back because they've loaned it out for 30 years at 3.5%. They want that money back so they can load it out again at five and a half. So you do the lender a favor if you sell your house and repay the mortgage. But why would you do that? I think what more and more people are going to want to do who have really low fixed rates Is they're going to want to hold on to that house and maybe turn it into a rental unit so they can get the higher rental income that's out there without giving up the low mortgage rate that they have. But that's going to lock a lot of people into those homes. There's going to be a lot less mobility and it is really bad news for the first time home buyer because A, there's not going to be a lot of inventory to buy because the people that own those starter homes maybe you're going to be stuck in those starter homes. They're not just the starter home, that's their finished home because they can't afford to trade up anymore because they can't afford the higher mortgage payment that would be required on a more expensive house. So they're staying in their starter homes, which means those starter homes are not available for the first time buyer. So you have fewer homes available. Fewer homes are going to be built because you can't afford to build them. And so what's going to happen is more and more people are going to be stuck as permanent renters now for some people that's probably a better deal renting rather than buying because they really can't afford to be homeowners but for a lot of people it's going to be an unfortunate situation and it's going to help put a lot more upward pressure on rents and eventually all that is going to have to show up in owners equivalent rent the CPI can't be in denial forever with respect to what's going on for rents. But this is all bad news on the economy because it's bad for the housing industry for the jobs that are created as a result of home constructions because fewer homes are going to be built because fewer people can afford to buy them and if fewer homes are going to be turning over then there's fewer remodelings that are be going on and a lot of people who earn a living in real estate sales in the mortgage industry think about all the people that were employed in mortgage industry that we're doing all these refinances no more refinances no one's going to refinance their mortgage and fewer people are going to be taking on new mortgages because they're glad they already have an existing mortgage and they're going to be holding on to that thing forever because for a lot of homeowners that is their single biggest asset is their fixed rate mortgage because as all their other costs are going up their utilities are going up, their maintenance are going up, their insurance is going up. The one thing that's not going up is their mortgage. And maybe inflation will be driving their wages up, so they'll be getting higher wages to pay those mortgages, but those mortgage payments remain fixed. That's why I've been encouraging people, if you're gonna buy a home, I've been saying for years, take out a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage because that is where you're gonna make your money. You're not gonna make your money as a homeowner, you're gonna make your money as a debtor. Now, also on Thursday, we got the GDP numbers, the second estimate for Q1 GDP. Remember, the initial read was minus 1.4%, which really surprised everybody. And everybody is ignoring that negative print because nobody thinks there's a recession anywhere on the horizon. Meanwhile, we could already be in one, especially when we've already got one negative GDP quarter in the bag. We just need a second one to be in recession. But a lot of people were hopeful that that minus 1.4 would be revised a bit lower. I think the consensus was it to notch down to minus 1.3. Instead, we went in the other direction and we notched it up to minus 1.5. So the weak economy in the first quarter is now even weaker than we were originally told. So again, more weak economic data, and I don't think this bodes well at all for GDP in the second quarter, I still think there's at least a 50-50 shot that that's gonna be another negative print, which means we're officially in a recession. If it's not a negative number, it'll be slightly positive, but only because we're underestimating the GDP deflator. And so that means we're actually in a recession. It's just that the rigged data doesn't allow that recession to be officially acknowledged. We also got the Kansas City Manufacturing Index for May, On Thursday, the consensus was for a 32 print. That would have been an improvement on the 25 that was reported for April. Instead of improving, we actually went the other way. The number came out at 23 for May. So, again, another economic data point that was below expectations. We got a bunch more bad economic news on Friday, including consumer sentiment, which was supposed to hold steady at 59.1, which was the same reading we had in April. Instead, we got a decline to 58.4. That was actually below the low end of expectations, which went from 58.5 on the low side to 64 on the high side. Again, why is consumer sentiment declining? Well, it's obvious because consumers are having to pay more money for everything they need to buy and their wages, if they have wages, are not going up as much as the cost of living. And if they're retired and they no longer have wages and they're living on a fixed income, those fixed incomes continue to lose purchasing power as prices go up. So it makes sense that consumers are getting more gloomy about the outlook. And that is going to continue because inflation is not coming to an end. It's actually just getting started. Also on Friday, we got one piece of economic news that wasn't as bad as expected, but it was still bad. And that was the advanced estimate on the international trade deficit for the month of April. Remember, we had a record high in March, $125.3 billion was a shockingly bad number that was reported. And in fact, we just revised it and made it even worse. $125.9 billion is the new record for red ink in one month when it comes to international trade in goods. Remember, this is not the unified deficit which includes our services surplus. This is just the trade deficit in goods. The expectation was for $118 billion deficit in goods for April, and the initial read is just 105.9 billion. So, actually, not nearly as bad as what was expected, but still a horrific number. Over 100 billion would have been an all time record high, but for what we just experienced in recent months. This is a very, very bad number. And the reason we got to that number was because we had a big drop in imports down 5%. Now, why are imports down 5%? Well, probably because Americans are now too broke to afford to buy those imports. And as the economy is weakening, because consumer spending in real terms is going down, the volume of imports is finally falling to reflect the weakness in the economy. Now, exports were still up. They were up by 3.1%. But the exports from the prior month were revised down. We were originally told that exports grew by 7.2%. Instead, they only grew by 5.8%. That's probably responsible for that upward revision in the March numbers. But again, these numbers reveal a weak U.S. economy in sharp contrast to the super strong U.S. economy that is being described by the Fed. But probably the most significant numbers of the day, at least as it bears on the economic outlook, was the personal income and spending numbers for April. And once again, we got a disappointing number. The estimate was for personal income to rise by 0.6. Instead, it only rose by 0.4. In contrast, spending, which was supposed to rise by 0.7, went up by 0.9. And in fact, we revised upward the prior month's number on spending from up 1.1 to up 1.4. Now why are consumers spending more? Because what they're buying costs more. Again, they're not buying more stuff, they're buying less stuff. They're just paying more money for the stuff they're buying. And in fact, because they're paying more money for the stuff they need. They have to buy less of the stuff they want. If you look at the basket of what they're spending their money on, more of the money is going to food. More of the money is going to energy. Consumers don't want to spend more money on food and energy. They want to spend more money on other stuff. But they can't buy the other stuff because they're spending so much money to eat and to heat their homes and drive their cars. Plus, they're also paying higher rent higher insurance, stuff like that, and so they don't have as much money left over. Now, how are consumers affording to buy all this more expensive stuff? Well, one way is they're dipping into a very shallow savings pool. In fact, the personal savings rate plunged all the way down to 4.4%. That is the lowest since September of 2008. Now, what was going on in September of 2008? Well, the 2008 financial crisis, I think that was the month that Lehman Brothers collapsed. We were in the middle of the worst recession since the Great Depression. Remember, that recession started in December of 2007. So you have to go all the way back to the Great Recession and to the 2008 financial crisis to find a moment in time where Americans were saving less than they're saving right now. Now, how does that jive with how Powell describes the U.S. economy as the strongest ever? Because if the U.S. economy was really so strong and household balance sheets were in such great shape because that's how Powell describes them, the consumer's in great shape, household balance sheets are really strong. If that was the case, wouldn't the savings rate be higher? Because after all, when people have a lot of extra money, When they're doing really well, when they're flush, they tend to save more. They put some money aside for a rainy day. It's when it's raining that they have to dip into the rainy day fund. So here you have Powell talking about how sunny the economy is, yet the consumers are tapping into their rainy day fund at the same degree that they were when it was pouring in September of 2008. So it doesn't make sense that if consumers are in such great shape that they're depleting their savings to such a degree. No, the reason they're depleting their savings is because times are tough. That's when you have to draw down your savings. That's when you reach into your rainy day fund when it's raining, not when it's sunshine and blue skies like Powell is suggesting. And of course, the other way that consumers are coping and making ends meet is by going deeper into debt. I talked before the last credit card numbers we saw there was an explosion in credit card debt. It was a record increase in the amount of money that Americans were borrowing and going out and spending. Why are they borrowing so much money if they're so flush? If they're in such great shape, why are they relying more on credit cards than ever before? And what are they buying with those credit cards? Because based on all the information we're getting from all these retailers, they're not buying these big ticket items, they're not buying the stuff they want, They are putting their grocery bill on their credit cards. They're putting their gas bill on their credit cards. That's what Americans are borrowing money to buy, food and energy. But of course, the fact that this credit remains plentiful and that Americans can keep borrowing and spending more money, that means the Fed has not done nearly enough to stop inflation because the expansion of the money supply and the supply of credit continues and it's going to continue to drive up prices. And when it comes to prices, as we always do when we get the personal income and spending numbers, we also get the personal consumption expenditure index, and more importantly, the core PCE year over year, which is the Fed's favorite way to measure inflation. And the reason it's the Fed's favorite way to measure inflation is because it's the least accurate. The personal consumption expenditure index understates inflation more than the CPI, which is why the Fed wants to use it, because it makes it easier for the Fed to pretend that their monetary policies aren't causing inflation if they can base it on the core PCE. The expectation was for the PCE to rise by 0.3 for the month of April. And that would have been a sharp drop from the 0.9 increase in the prior month. And in fact, the index only rose by 02 So a bit better than expectations, although the year-over-year PCE rose exactly as expected by 6.3%. Still, though, a bit of an improvement over the 6.6% from March. But getting into that core PCE, again, the Fed's favorite measure, it matched expectations by rising 0.3% on the month which followed a 03 increase in the prior month. But now the year-over-year year core PCE is up 4.9%, again, matching expectations, but not as bad as the 5.2% rise in the prior month, which was the highest in 30 or 40 years. But even though it's better than last month, it's still almost 5%, more than double the 2% target That the Fed has and there's no indication at all that the core CPE is going to come anywhere near 2% in the near term or probably in the long term and in fact it's irrelevant anyway because it strips out so many important things and it's already so highly manipulated based on substitution and hedonics. But now that I'm talking about the Federal Reserve again, there's one last point I wanted to make here on this podcast about the Fed because a lot of people are out there Monday morning quarterbacking what the Fed has done and pretty much everybody who is acknowledging that the Fed kept the stimulus in place too long, that they should have acted quicker to remove it, they should have started to shrink the balance sheet a while ago, they should have started the rate hikes sooner and the fact that they waited too long Almost everybody who is making that point is also making the point that the stimulus initially was the right thing to do, that the Fed did the right thing. They just did the right thing too long, that it was correct for the Fed to bail out the economy, that they should have slashed rates to 1%, that they should have done all this quantitative easing. It's just that they left it in place too long, that after the emergency was over, They should have been more quick to remove the emergency accommodation, but they left it in place too long. The fact that so many people still make that point shows that they don't really understand what's going on. It was a mistake from the beginning. The Fed never should have provided the monetary stimulus that it did. The U.S. government never should have provided the fiscal stimulus. That was the wrong combination in monetary and fiscal policy from the beginning. And because they made that mistake, there was no way out. The reason the Fed waited so long is because it was afraid of the consequences. So it wanted to wait as long as possible and maybe hope that the inflation story turned out to be true instead of a fairy tale. The Fed only began to acknowledge inflation and do something about it once the problem became so enormous that it can no longer pretend that it wasn't there. But the Fed policy response and Congress's response was a mistake from the beginning. They never should have done it. Yes, it did soften the blow of the recession that would have followed the policy response to COVID-19, but doing that was a mistake. And it's a mistake that I pointed out in real time as the Fed was making it. Again, what happened during COVID? People stopped producing. People stopped producing goods. They stopped providing services. People left their jobs and they stayed at home. So we had a big drop in supply. There was a supply shock to the economy because people that used to be working productively stopped working. So what did the Fed need to do? We needed a decline in demand. We needed money supply to contract along with the contracting supply of goods and services. What did the government need to do? The government needed to do the same thing. The government needed to cut spending. Demand had to go down with supply. But the Federal Reserve and the government didn't want demand to go down because demand going down meant a recession. So we traded recession for inflation. And my point was the trade-off wasn't worth it, that we're going to suffer now more because of inflation than we would have suffered because of recession. Now, exacerbating the degree of that recession would have been the fact that the economy was so ill-prepared to handle one, given the fact that we had so much debt and the economy was so screwed up. But whose fault was that? That was the Fed. That was government policy. The government put us in a position where the economy was ill-prepared to deal with the recession that was the consequence of COVID, but ultimately taking a recession would have been a less of a burden on the consumer than having to deal with decades of inflation because that's where we are now. Inflation is gonna continue. It's gonna get worse. We already made that deal with the devil. I pointed that out. It's just that now that the devil is here to collect, and nobody understands the nature of the deal we've made and they don't understand why the economy is going to hell.